All right, let's turn to our scripture reading for this morning. We're looking at Revelation chapter 18, uh, verse 1 to 3. Revelation 18, verse 1 to 3. Let's give our attentive hearing uh, to the reading of God's word. After this, I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority, and the earth was made bright with his glory. And he called out with a mighty voice, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a dwelling place for demons, a haunt for every unclean spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird, a haunt for every unclean and detestable beast. For all nations have drunk the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. And the king of the earth have committed immorality with her. And the merchants of the earth have grown rich from the power of her luxurious living. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to Christ. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we ask that uh, you would continue to speak to us. Uh, Speak to us the words um, that we need to hear and help us to receive it as long as it is consistent with your truth, as as nothing less than uh, words coming from your own lips. And uh, receive this word with uh, a humble heart, uh, with a desire to not only uh, discern it, but, but to obey it as well. Help us in this, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're continuing in our uh, series in the book of Revelation, and we've been talking quite a bit about um, Babylon and, and all that Babylon symbolizes. Um, and just as a recap, right? Some, some have interpreted Babylon to be something more political, something more governmental, like the Roman Empire. Uh, Some others have interpreted to mean something less visible, something a bit more systemic and permeating like culture, um, education, or commerce, economy, and things like that. Either way you look at it, this is symbolizing a a city, right? Babylon is symbolizing a city or a a world that uh, continues to tempt seduce, distract the people of God from being the one thing that they need to be, just the, the one thing they need to focus on being, and that is the bride of Christ, pure, faithful, committed bride of Christ. Um, so when you think about it that way, what could be sort of the modern-day spiritual Babylon well, uh, it's anything, anywhere that tempts you, seduces you, distracts you, keeps you, hinders you from, from being a faithful bride of Christ. Um, and, and that goes back to what we were talking about last week. It, it's, it's almost like you're set up for a very impossible task of being a fish in a water, uh, but not of the water. You're in the water, but not of the water. Somehow, um, as people who live in this world, spiritual Babylon, you have to be not of it, right? Uh, you, can't, you can't be not in it, but you must not be of it. How do you do that? And um, I think the first three verses of chapter 18 shows us, um, tells us how this is possible. And it's all through this person. This person uh, coming down from heaven, 
right? We're not given sort of this 12-step um, how to uh, move out of Babylon or uh, how to live in Babylon but not of Babylon. We're given a person as if he is enough. And I want to highlight uh, three things about this person. And with each one, um, there's sort of this response that we're supposed to give. It, it draws out a response from us. First, this person, he's, according to the passage, he is glorious. He has glory. Okay. Uh, second, he speaks. He's not silent. And third, he convicts the world of sin. Okay. So the, these three we'll look at. He is glorious. He speaks. He convicts the world of sin. These three. All right, and again, each of these I think will draw out a certain response from us, some practical application from each. All right, let's start with the first point. He's glorious. Uh, verse one. After this, I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority, and the earth was made bright with his glory. His glory. Okay, right off the bat, um, this is what theologians call a Christophany, and that's a fancy word for. Uh, an appearance of Christ. Uh, the word angel, first of all, literally means messenger. It doesn't mean some created being with halo and, and wings and harps. It, it, it means messenger. And this messenger comes out of heaven, has great authority, and gives glory to, to, to the rest of the world. And whenever you have a, a heavenly figure this authoritative and this glorious, it's referring to God. Um, the created angelic beings that serve God and worship God at the throne are always said to have been given authority. It doesn't say that here. Uh, it says this angel has great authority. And he's not made glorious. He is glorious. He makes everything else glorious by his glory. So uh, taking those twofold attributes, his glory, his authority, this makes this appearance of this person a Christophany. This is, this is Christ. Having great authority, the earth made bright with his glory. Now that is, if you think about it, sort of a breath of fresh air given what we've been looking at so far with the uh, with Babylon and, and, and the first beast and the second beast and all the, the wrath of God, the final judgment of God. Um, it's like there's actually something glorious to behold and focus on now, um, and that is the glory of God and the authority of God uh, in the person of Christ. Okay. And, and what sort of response should that draw from us? Uh, what is this asking us to do in a sense? By, by pointing us to the glory of Christ. Uh, whenever scripture points us to the glory of God or the person of Christ, it's, it's drawing from us our adoration, our admiration, our praise. Okay. We're being called here to adore him and to rest, pre-trust in his authority, even in the midst of the end of the world and, and the coming final judgment. Look to his glory and his authority, and rest in him. Okay. So this is very helpful to us because on the one hand, Revelation has been teaching us, uh, uh, given the, the presence of Satan and uh, those who follow him, those who worship the beast, uh, evil, 
wickedness, sin, these are very real in our world, right? Um, we, don't, we don't have to subscribe to the naturalistic view, the, the, the sort of the secular materialistic view that says um, everything is just nature and nature is all there is. And even when things go south, it's just nature sort of wreaking havoc on itself. No, uh, it, according to that worldview, evil is just whatever you happen to not prefer, but it's not a real concept. If revelation is true, uh, evil is real. It's very real. So you don't have to look at all that's you know going around around us. You turn on the news and you run into something that's horrific, terrifying, and and horrendously evil. You can make realistic sense of that, given what Revelation has been revealing to us about the world, this cosmos, about not only God but His enemy, about Satan, about those who worship Satan, those who practice. Uh, wickedness. The, these these are not abstract things. These are things we encounter in the day to day life, and so uh, we we don't have to live with therefore this naive, false optimism, pretend optimism in this world, because uh, you have to be very detached from the real world to live that way. To have good vibes only. <laughs> uh, how detached do you have to be from reality to have good vibes only? On the other hand, if what Revelation teaches us about the judgment of God on that evil is also true, then we're not just left with some bleak picture of you know, evil being real. We also see evil's eventual defeat, final judgment, that gives us, therefore, hope in the present, reason to live for what is good. And that keeps us, on the other hand, uh, living with this cynical anger about what's wrong with the world. So on the one hand, it, it keeps you from false optimism, gives you a realism. But on the other hand, it doesn't make you cynical about what's evil out there. Uh, it gives you reason to celebrate what is good, hold on to what is good, given the coming glory of God, the authority of God to make his, his kingdom a final reality, to, to, to make all things right, and make all things new. Gavin Ortland, he's a pastor and a theologian, and he had this great quote. He says, a choice we can make afresh every day is first, saturate your heart in the love of God and the hope of heaven, and then face the storms of this world, and that will make all the difference, right? Given the glory of God and, and the glory of Christ, we can first Fill our hearts with that, with the hope of heaven, with the love of God, with his glory, and then with that, face the storms, the trials, even the, the evils of this life. Okay. So that is one way, by be, just simply beholding, adoring Christ in all his glory, we have a way already right, to be in Babylon, but not of it. To see Babylon for all that it is, but not become cynical and angry and pessimistic. Somehow hold on to goodness. Somehow hold on to hope. Somehow live on. How? When you look at the glory and the authority of Christ. You got to see him in all his glory, adore him, and then face the storms of this life. Okay. Um, 
And along with that, we also, has, we also must listen to what he is saying. And that's the second point. He speaks. He doesn't just sh- show up and wow us. He, he speaks. He's not silent. Okay. Um, it says in verse 2, he calls out, in fact, with a mighty voice. Mighty voice to the inhabitants of Babylon. He calls out with a mighty voice. What does he say? Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. Okay. On the one hand, it's a, it's a pronouncement of judgment. On the other hand, it's a declaration of his victory. Right. Uh, fallen is Babylon. Right. Risen is God. Right. Still standing is God. Um, Jesus is in a saying, in a sense, saying here, um, even even though it hasn't come to fruition yet, because it's so sure, uh, it's it's as good as fallen Babylon and all that it symbolizes. Uh, you're going down, right? It's it's almost like uh, when um, when the Golden State Warriors were were matched up with the Boston Celtics in the finals. Before a single game began, I called it. I said. <laughs> I said, Celtics are going down, right? Fallen, fallen are the Boston Celtics. Um, no offense if you're from Boston. I know some of you are from Boston. I'm sorry. Um, that's how sure um, Christ is in, in pronouncing the defeat of Babylon, even though it hasn't happened yet. Isaiah did the same with physical, historical Babylon in the Old Testament. And, and he said, you know, uh, God will be vindicated in the end when his righteousness prevails over Babylon, all those who worship Babylon's idols. Um, God's word will be final. God's word will remain. And, and um, those who listened to God's word were able to then keep away from the false prophets that were rampant during those times. But um, those who gave in to the false prophets, they worshiped the idols of Babylon, uh, were exiled. And so, the the same dynamic is borrowed here, okay? And the same warning, in a sense, is present here, and that is, uh, be sure you're, re- you're, you're listening to the right voice, okay? Whether you live as um, citizens of Babylon or exiles of Babylon um, depends very much on wh- who you're listening to. Here's God's word uh, saying in verse 2, she, that's Babylon, has become a dwelling place for demons, a haunt, which is like a prison, for every unclean spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird, a haunt for every unclean and detestable beast. Right? And the repeated word here is unclean, unclean, unclean. Right? Um, two things here. First, uh, this is important because... <laughs> This is to say, if, God's, if God is calling something unclean, such a thing as unclean exists. And, and I thought that sounds too simplistic to, to sound meaningful, but uh, it's similar to the point about morality. Uh, if, if there's no such thing as a straight line, right, you wouldn't know what a crooked line looks like, right? So when God calls something unclean, what does that mean? Uh, something's that is truly holy and pure does exist, right? When my, when my children draw and they try to draw a circle and it's all you know, out of whack, how do I know that's a terrible circle? Because I know what a perfect circle looks like, right? And it exists, it's a real thing. 
when God says something's unclean, right, he's, he's speaking to a real moral reality where there's such a thing as holiness and unholiness. Things are clean and unclean, pure and impure. These are, again, real things uh, in real life, in the real world. That's the first point. And the second point is this. It's more of an imperative. If God says it's unclean, don't touch it. <laughs> uh, there's... A, Right, that sounds so simplistic, but if he says it's it's impure, it's unclean, right? You can't treat it like it's innocent. Uh, everybody does it. Everybody touches it. It's just for it's just for fun. It's it's all in good. Fun. You can't treat it that way if if he really means it when he says it's unclean. All right. All this assumes what? Are you are you listening to what he's saying? Are you actually listening to his voice? That was the tension in the Old Testament, and it's continuing uh, in this vision. Something's unclean in God's eyes. It's displeasing to him. Uh, does that awaken you to the reality uh, of what is holy and not holy? Does it, does it guide you? It says here his voice is mighty. Why? Because for those who really listen to him, his voice has might. His voice moves you in a certain direction. It compels you in a certain direction. Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice and they follow me. All right. That's the same thing. Um, if we really listen to his voice and we, if you really are his people, uh, his voice will have might. It, it will move us. Are you... <laughs> listening to his voice. Um, that's the second question when it comes to how we, or answer as to how we live in Babylon as exiles, uh, fish in the water, but not of it. It all depends on whose voice you're listening to. Uh, who has more sway? Who has more might uh, in, your, in your life? Who controls you more? Okay. The voice that caused you to love God in all of his glory and power or the voice that caused you to love the world and all its pleasures and luxuries? Who has more grip on, on your soul? Um, discerning the voice, uh, that's, how we, that's how we live in Babylon without being of it. And this is going to sound super um, preachy, but this is where, this is where pastors say to uh, Christians regularly, you must read your Bible. <laughs> right? You have to read the word because you got to listen to his voice. You have to listen to his voice and, uh, and not just read the passage, but listen for what he's saying to you through the passage. Here, here are a couple examples um, that I want to just throw out there just to put it on your radar. Examples of things you ought to be hearing from God preferably every single day. And as often as you can, as often as you open his word, you should hear at least him saying to you, I made you and I am your creator. I made you in my image and your job and purpose is to reflect my image. You should hear that every day, if not every hour of your day. The world um, doesn't say that to you. Um, the world doesn't really tell you that you were made with a purpose 
Uh, if anything, it tells you, the world says you were a, a cosmic accident. There's a good chance your presence or absence will make any difference to the world before you. Um, but God's word says, God's voice says, no, you are a beloved creation created with a purpose. And you must live, therefore, the way I intended you to live. Well, those are two very different modes of living. And it all begins with who are you listening to and, and, and where are you starting off? Um, here's another thing that I think we should hear from God every day, as often as we go to his word. I want you and want to be with you. That's something that God says to us. And you should hear him saying that to you. Deuteronomy 7, God says, my people are my treasured possessions. Isaiah, he calls them his bride. In John 15, he calls them his friends. In Revelation 2, he calls them his first love. The voice of God is essentially saying, you belong with me. You belong to me. And I want to be with you. I love being with you. You should, you should hear that from the voice of God every day, if not every hour of every day. Does the world, the spiritual Babylon say that? <laughs> no, the, the world says the opposite. The world says you are unwanted, unworthy, undesirable until you prove yourself otherwise. Right. You are not lovely until you prove yourself that you're lovely through your grades, your, your achievements, your job title, your appearance, how you dress, what you drive. Right. What are you listening, which, which force are you listening to? And do you think it will make a difference which force you listen to and how that would dictate your way of life? Absolutely. Um, he speaks. He's not silent. Are you listening to him? Does his voice have weight, have might in your life? His voice says he loves you because he is love, not because you're worthy of love or because you've earned it. He loves you because he is love. And he, and he has given you his, his, his affection to the extent of giving you his son. And his son has volunteered to give his life to save you. All these are God's way of saying, you're mine, you belong to me, and, and I love you. And this love is already yours. And that's the voice of God speaking to us. Are you listening to that voice? Are you listening to those words? At the risk of sounding like a broken record, you have to read the word. You have to devote yourself to God's word, to listening to his voice. A very, a very practical question is, you know, um, just asking yourself, you know, whether it's start of the day, first thing in the morning, preferably before you go to work, um, what am I carrying with me in my mind? Uh, that God has spoken to me today. Don't go anywhere uh, without carrying some voice from God, some word from the Lord. Even if it is, I made you. Even if it's just, I am with you, right? Uh, do not 
go into any context without having first received this from the Lord. Because the rest of the day, right, it's going to be filled with the other voices telling you who you are, telling you what you're worth. Listen to his voice. He's not silent. He speaks. Lastly, um, he also convicts the world of sin. Uh, Verse 3, For all nations have drunk the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality, and the kings of the earth have committed immorality with her, and the merchants of the earth have grown rich from the power of her luxurious living. Right. Um, This is a a verdict, right? This is a diagnosis. Uh, Too many people have become drunk with Babylon, got in bed with Babylon, and surrendered all their resources, all their material wealth to Babylon. That's That's the symbol of the wine, immorality, and luxuries. That is the diagnosis. And and to to put it more plainly, um, this is saying to us, uh, you have loved too much the world. You have loved the world too much. And, and, And that's something you ought to confess and seek forgiveness for. Now, I want to be very clear about something, though. Um, God has given us many joys in this life, right? Whether that's uh, sports or a good novel, uh, a, a good movie, music, food, right? These are good gifts uh, by means of God's providence and his common grace given to us all, right? Um, This point is not about depriving yourself of these good things. That's not the point. Nor is it the point uh, to to force you to listen only to Christian music, um, read only Christian books, watch Christian movies only, uh, root for Christian athletes, and vote for Christian politicians. No. As if as if there's no value in, in what secular people bring into secular culture, as if they're not created in God's image. They are. And, and because they're created in God's image, they're bound to produce good things and do good work. This is not that, okay? And that's not what God is judging here. That's not what's coming under the judgment in verse 3. What's coming under judgment is not the enjoyment of the world that God has made. It's the enjoyment of the excess. It's the drunkenness with the world. And the immoral, corrupt version of the world that God had made that is coming under judgment. And and guys, I, I'll quote Paul and say, I am the chief of sinners when it comes to this. Right. Uh, loving, loving God's good gifts too much uh, to the point of excess, point of wastefulness, uh, to the point of selfishness, purely for my selfish gratification. I am the chief of sinners in this overly indulging in in things in culture that actually aren't good, that actually are unclean, clearly, in God's eyes. 
Um, and not feeling any remorse over it. Why? Because everybody does it. We have to repent of that. Right. This person convicts the world of sin. And, um, call, and in calling us to confess this, we're also called to return to God, who is our truest and greatest joy and delight. Our greatest treasure to which nothing in the world can compare. Seeing him and returning to him. That's, that's really the point of confession and forgiveness. Uh, forgiveness is not the end of confession. It's never the end of confession. Con- forgiveness brings us into the ultimate gift, the treasure, which is a right relationship with God. Right. It's not a clean slate. Right. Uh, it's not feeling good about my, my sins again, so I can, I can go back into the world and do the same. No, for, forgive, being forgiven is about being given someone. Someone greater than the, the things that led you to sin. And that's what God is calling us to hear. Right? Catch this diagnosis. Agree with the verdict. Confess your sins. Return to the Lord. Return to the Lord. Return to your spiritual husband, your spiritual bridegroom. So in turning to him, um, here's, the, here's the practical point. In turning to him, say, Lord, here are my sins, and, and forgive me. And, and teach your children to pray the same. Lord, here are my sins, Jesus, forgive me. But follow through with Follow through. Say the next thing. And here I am. Receive me once again. So I will be with you. I'll be with you. It's not the absence of sin that we aim for. It's the presence of God that we aim for. Both forgiveness and reconciled relationship. And nothing uh, shows this more tangibly, more clearly to us than than the Lord's Supper, right? Because nothing brings together the importance of forgiveness and reconciliation more clearly than that, more evidently than sitting at the same table, eating from the same table. We, we get to slide our knees under the table of God and eat with him. We, we eat of, drink of what he provides us and, and receive nourishment from him. And we remember as the Israelites were eating their Passover meal, remember, we, we don't belong in Egypt. And, and they had their exodus we will have our Passover meal and be reminded we don't belong in Babylon and, and we must have our exodus. And that makes this our, yours and my Passover meal. Eat this and be ready to cross the Red Sea. Eat this and be ready to exit out of Babylon or live as exiles in Babylon. And that's the third and final way in which we find ourselves in Babylon, but we're not of it. We, we confess before the Lord, we return to him, and we eat with him and have fellowship with him. Let's pray and go to the Lord's table. Our Father in heaven, uh, we thank you for your call out of Babylon, the spiritual one, and um, Lord, calling us to be different, calling us to be exiles uh, rather than citizens there because you have made us citizens in your kingdom.
Lord, as we partake of this meal, uh, Lord, bless us once again with the reassurance, reminder of who we are and where we belong, whose people we are, whose voice we follow, um, and let, let it transform us, let it change us from the inside. Um, may we uh, return to this communion with you and fellowship with you once again um, and become more like you um, as we sit with you, as we draw near to you. We pray all this in your son's name. Amen.